Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn how to create a more positive, productive, and healthy organization. My guest today, Aaron Dignan, helps organizations from small companies to global corporations eliminate red tape and awaken their innate ability to self-organize and self-manage. His book, Brave New Work, is the new go-to manual for leaders seeking to lead their organizations to a more adaptive and human future. And I am super excited, Aaron, that you're here to talk about your new book because it's not often, I mentioned this to you before we got started on the interview, that you see a leadership book come through at least harvesting happiness that touches on that sweet spot of humanity. Yeah, it's interesting to me too. And I think that's part of the problem, right? We're, we're so obsessed with tuning the machine of, of industry that we very seldom talk about the fact that it's made up entirely of people. People with lives, problems, distractions, foibles, you know, like humanity, like stuff. Yeah, it's messy and it's very human. And I think that's, that's a part of it. And that's sort of the, that's the challenge, but it's also the potential of it, actually. I agree with you. And when you talk about the humanity of humans and how it applies to building a more successful and harmonious organization, give us a couple of examples of where the application of your theories and your work has been successful. Because you work with a lot of cool companies. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is really just accepting the fact that we are capable of showing up differently when the environment is different, when the what I call the operating system is different. And so one of my favorite metaphors to use with teams is this metaphor of the, you know, signal controlled or the lighted intersection for for a traffic stop and then the roundabout. And then of course in the lighted situation with the red lights and the green lights, the 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 underlying assumption of that operating system, that way of solving the problem is you can't be trusted. And we'll tell you when to stop and when to go and just kind of comply, follow, follow the instructions. And you don't really have to be present in your own body, in your own mind in that scenario. You just kind of sit there and check your phone or drink your coffee. Um, the roundabout has a different set of assumptions about people. You know, it says we trust you, you and we trust each other. We're going to be in this together. Um, and there's just a couple constraints that kind of keep us moving as one. Um, however, you're going to be on, right? Like you you're accountable, you're responsible, you're present and alive in the system. And so um, that's that's necessary in order to succeed. And I think what we've found at work is that everything from budgeting to how we meet, to how we structure teams, to how we pay, to how we develop, you can sort of take one of those two approaches. You can take the approach of we're going to tell you and we're gonna, it's going to happen to you, welcome to the stoplight. <laughs> or you can take the roundabout approach and say, you know what, you're part of this, you're in it, you're responsible, but you're also free. And so, you know, 
know, you play a much bigger role. And, and of course, the beauty of this metaphor is that the data tells us, even data from here in the United States, where we're maybe less comfortable in the roundabout, the data tells us that they're dramatically safer, dramatically higher throughput, cheaper to build and maintain, and they work a heck of a lot better when the power goes out. Very well said. And I also want to add that you are the founder of The Ready, an organization design and transformation firm that helps institutions like Johnson & Johnson, Charles Schwab, Kaplan, Microsoft, Lloyds Bank, I mean, on and on and on, Airbnb, like really large and amazing companies change the way they work. And this is big. The fact that so many companies are attracted to this says something about where we're at. It's kind of blown me away, actually, over the last three or four years, because I've been, you know, digging and digging in this space. And for a while, there was a lot of resistance, you know, a lot of like things are fine the way they are from the leadership. Obviously, the teams were feeling these tensions that we talk about, and they were feeling the, the kind of weight of the bureaucracy. But for a long time, I felt like, you know, the leadership wasn't really there. And then suddenly something happened and I'm not sure exactly what it was, but we hit a tipping point and now wherever I go, I mean, I've gone as far as Manila with this message. There are CEOs and leaders and managers and founders standing up being like, either we are a bureaucracy and we want to flip the table over and figure out how to fix it. We want to be agile. We want to be fast. We want to be, you know, create some meaning in the world or um, we're a startup that's growing fast and we're scared to death that we're going to become one. That we're going to hire people and import people and import ideas that turn us into these big, you know, functional, hierarchical, silo uh, environments. And, and that's not what we want. We want to keep our magic. So there is a widespread awareness now, which is really exciting. And now I think it's about figuring out how to turn that into action. And when you talk about magic, you know, the magic is in the culture that is being bred at these companies who are really seeking a transformational and transcendent approach to the way they do their work. I think that's right. The magic is that we are capable of so much more when we think about organizations the right way. When we change our mental model of what they are and how they work and we sort of, you know, change the approach, then suddenly we're capable of doing things you wouldn't believe. I mean, one of the examples in the book, there's a, a tomato processing company called Morningstar that's actually the world's largest tomato processor. And you can imagine this is not the world's most glamorous work. But the, the person that started it was thinking, you know, for that very reason, let's let's bring some dignity and some humanity and some responsibility into this environment. And so um, every year, the people that work there set their own salary and write their own job descriptions. And they do that with an advice process. So they take a crack at what they'd like to do and what they've done this year and how they'd like to change that next year. And then with total transparency to the firm's finances and the industry averages and what their peers make, they take a crack at what they think they're worth as well. And their peers get a chance to provide a little advice based on what they've written down in their in their colleague letter of understanding or clue, as they call it. Um, and then they take or take or don't take that advice and move forward into the future. And what's funny about that is, A, you know, that company is about 10x more profitable than their category average. So it's, you know, it's working fine for the for the bean counters. B, everybody is, you know, is obviously profoundly more engaged and, and feeling like they're being treated like an adult and like they have some autonomy and agency in the system. But what I love about it is it, it talks about what's possible when we change our expectations. So I'm often doing this presentation in front of MBAs and, you know, serious business leaders and people that have been doing it the old way for a long time. And when I say something like people could set their own pay, I get laughed <laughs> out of the building until I say, you know, people that pick tomatoes do this, right? Like you have Harvard MBAs, you should be able to figure this out, you know? And so it, it is really just about saying, well, wait a second, what, 
what are we capable of as a group collectively and what could we self-manage or, or self-organize around, you know, to solve? So that's, that's what it's about. And when you talk about, in, in the case of the tomato company, the workers setting their own salaries, I think as humans, we're pretty aware of the value or worth of our job based upon <laughs> what is required. You know, somebody who's picking tomatoes is not going to ask for $250,000 a year. That's right. Yeah. And I think we have this funny fear that somehow they will, right? That the X case is going to be the one that, that should set the, that should set the policy. And, um, base camps, one of base camp founders, Jason Fried always says, don't scar on the first cut, right? If somebody steals a book from the bookstore, don't put 15 locks on the door, right? Like it's, it's one incident. Don't design for the 1%, design for the 99% and then, you know, figure out what to do about those edge cases. So, I do feel that way about things like comp, but I also feel that um, one of the reasons we make bad decisions when we do is because we don't have enough information. And so I, a very common pattern I see is a leader will get very excited about empowerment. They'll get very excited about autonomy and they'll grant it to everyone, but they'll forget the step of, does everyone have all the information? Do they know what's going on in the market? <laughs> Do they have information about the finances? Do they have information? You know, is it an environment where I can get what I need? And so then people make what are seemingly bad decisions and the leader throws up their hands and says, see, I told you, they just can't handle the responsibility. <laughs> and it's like, well, it's a system, right? So you can't make one move without thinking about the others. And that's one of the reasons why I, why I built the, the operating system framework that's in the book is to think about how we do structure affects how we do authority, affects how we share information, affects how we compensate, affects how we allocate resources. And it's not that we have to necessarily change it all at once, but we certainly have to be mindful of how they're interconnected. It, it also sounds like it's about knowing the rules of engagement. If you only give somebody half the set of the rules for the game, you can't really expect them to play the entire game perfectly because they don't know what's expected <laughs> of them. That's right. Yeah, they don't know what's expected. They don't know, understand maybe the full context. I mean, one of my favorite things about the press is they lionize these startup founders and leaders as somehow dramatically smarter than the rest of us. But having spent time with them, what I can tell you is their life is a constant stream of exposure to interesting people and ideas and information, a stream that most of us just don't get. And so while they are certainly very intelligent and very impressive, imagine having incredible conversations every day with people that challenge you and getting more and more information every day about what's going on on the broader stage. Suddenly you look awful smart, but what's really happened is that you've just been exposed. And so I think that participation and that, um, I call it information symmetry, is kind of a requirement if you want the organization to be stellar, then everybody needs to be able to have access to that kind of information flow. And it's also having skin in the game. What I'm hearing from what you're describing is a, is a high level of empowerment of people, you know, people being the most valuable commodity that, that, that the companies have, systems being second. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's the participation uh, goes in a lot of different directions. I mean, we talk about participation as having a voice. One of the details that we've learned in social science is that equal talk time is one of the best predictors of team success, you know, far more than IQ or what school we went to. Um, if everybody on the team has roughly the same amount of talk time, that's a really good sign. So having a voice matters. I think having a what I call a consent right or an ability to make agreements with each other rather than have things sort of pushed on you um, is really important because it gives us 
this agency and it gives legitimacy to what we decide. You know, if, if I tell you, you have to respond to me when I email you between nine and five and you don't have a choice, you'll do it, but you're complying. But if you and I sit down and we agree with each other that that's what we're going to do, and maybe we change the timing by 15 minutes because of when I drop my kid off at school, now we own it together. And there's a very different psychology about that. I'm going to enforce and support and promote that idea because I, I was a part of creating it. So I think that the way we govern these organizations has to change in that way so that at least locally in my team, in my geography, in my market, um, I'm, I'm not just doing things the way we do them, but I'm also shaping the way we do them. And we're going to take a break in a minute. And But before we do, I just want to sort of bring up the idea of this new landscape for teamwork, because so many of us, myself included, and my guess is you as well, have moved to a, a virtual uh, platform for conducting at least a good part of the business world. We're dealing mm-hmm. with multiple time zones. We're dealing with team members that are in countries all over the world, different schedules, different cultural needs, as well as social needs and human needs. So there's so much that comes into the arena in the way we do business now. I think it sets the bar for what good looks like so much higher. So I often joke that doing this new way of working together in a room is is junior varsity <laughs> and doing it remotely around the world is varsity. <laughs> so because you miss those subtle cues, you miss some of the body language, you miss some of the, the energy, the serendipity, the collisions that happen that allow you to navigate all this complexity. And so now you have to be all the more attentive. You have to be all the more, you know, kind of connected. And so... Obviously, that means paying more attention to the way we work and paying more attention to colleagues and using new tools to create some of those some of those moments. So we use um, inside our our Slack instance, which is our little messaging service internally. We use a, a little robot that comes in and introduces two random people to have uh, a cup of tea or or, or a coffee together uh, virtually, obviously, every week. So it'll say, you know, hey, you haven't talked to to Jill in a while. You all should should connect this week for thirty minutes for no reason other than just to see what comes of it, right? To see what emerges. And little things like that, I think, make the difference. I think using, you know, video when we communicate makes the difference to be able to see body language. There's a lot of data suggesting that increases trust quite dramatically. Um, it's a little bit more uncomfortable because you can't wear your bathrobe, but you, you get the trust benefit. Uh, <laughs> oh, but maybe so you can't. <laughs> Maybe you can. You know, I mean, if you really have high trust with your colleague, then you can go back to the bathrobe. So I think that, you know, that kind of stuff matters a lot. Let's take a break. We're talking about leading from the heart and improving the bottom line from there with Aaron Dignan. To learn more about his work, please go to www.aarondignan.com and theready.com. The book we're talking about today is Brave New Work. You can connect with Aaron on Twitter at Aaron Dignan and Facebook, Brave New Work. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. That's a promise. Wait, wait, wait. Before we take that pause, I want to express some love and appreciation for today's show sponsor, Molecule, air purification reinvented for every room in your home. Molecule makes the only air purifier that actually destroys pollutants at a molecular level, completely removing them from the air we breathe. Molecule is state-of-the-art science that leaves antiquated HEPA filters in the dust. Right now, we've got a lot of construction going on around Green Acres, filling the place with airborne dust and debris. The air around me is simply filled with pollutants and allergens that have aggravated my sinuses and activated my allergies. But Molecule saves the day 
quickly relieving my symptoms with its photoelectrochemical oxidation known as Pico Nanotechnology, which eliminates allergens, mold, bacteria, viruses, and airborne chemicals that typical old-fashioned HEPA filters only collect, not eradicate. Molecules technology has been personally effective and verified by science, but most importantly, it's been tested by real people like me. We keep our unit in the bedroom because breathing clean air improves our sleep and we love our sleep around here. Molecule has already helped allergy and asthma sufferers around the country better cope with their conditions and significantly reduce their symptoms. One customer even said that she was able to breathe through her nose for the first time in 15 years. Molecule doesn't just have groundbreaking technology on the inside. It has a sleek aluminum design that makes it the apple of air purifiers. Join me in better breathing and receive 10% off your first air purifier order. Visit Molecule.com. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com. And be sure to enter the promo code HH10 at checkout. Once again, that's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com. Dot com, molecule.com, and remember the promo code HH10 to receive 10% off your first air purifier order. Now here comes that break. We'll be right back, and that is a guarantee. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to the show. We are focusing on creating a more positive, productive, and healthy organization. My guest today is Aaron Dignan. Let's return to the conversation. Aaron, we're talking about companies and corporate culture and how to have people have more skin in the game and be invested from the heart and therefore improve the bottom line by leading from that place. And that's what I glean from your work anyways. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it really is just about thinking differently about people and about organizations and the markets themselves. And and the interesting collision between the two is that when we trust each other, when we show up differently, when we show up whole, when we make space for each other, then we're so much more able to navigate the the complexities of the markets and, and of these organizations where things are changing so fast and it can be hard to keep up. And certainly from the top, it can be impossible to, to try to control everything from, from a jump seat uh, at the top of some big pyramid. You know, it needs to be dynamic, it needs to be a living system. Let's uh, give some living examples of the shifts that you have witnessed through this process. I mean, I'm looking at one here, a healthcare provider with an HQ of just 50 people supporting over 14,000 in the field is named the best place to work year after year. So that's 50 people supporting 14,000. What is the secret sauce? I think what's interesting, so this is Burtzorg, which is a, a home nursing company in the Netherlands. It's the most successful there by, you know, by far and away. What they've realized and what many other organizations in the book have realized is that we need to kind of decentralize, actually. So if we're going to have scale, if we're going to have global organizations, rather than have them in these big functional silos where we have all the lawyers together and all the designers together and all the marketers together and never the twain shall meet, that's not how we create value. Um, that's not how we meet the market. That's not how we show up for actual customers. And so if that's the case, then we should organize differently. The person that created Burtzorg was a nurse himself. And he realized, you know what, this is a calling. 
And the fact that we're micromanaging every number and every metric and how many minutes they spent on site and trying to cut that down to the absolute minimum and trying to treat patient outcomes like machine, you know, machine learning, like we're going to get some perfect algorithm. It, he said it was just sapping the life out of him. And so instead with, with Bert Sorg, they said, let's organize around communities because that's where the work is. That's where the people that need our care are. We'll put teams of 10 to 12 nurses in a community and we'll just let them do their work how they want to do it. So <laughs> let them serve the, the customers how they want to serve them. And if they need to spend 15 minutes, that's fine. If they want to spend an hour, that's fine. And they nurtured this idea for a while. And what emerged was that, you know, the first thing a Burt's Org nurse does now when they uh, start with a new patient is they sit down and have a cup of coffee with them. So before it was, you know, if you're there for more than eight minutes, you're, you're fired. And now it's, we're going to have a one hour cup of coffee and I'm going to talk to you about your goals, your autonomy, your neighbors, your support structure, you know, like who you are as a human being and how you're going to approach this, this healing or this change that's going on in your life. And, you know, wouldn't you know it, the, the dividends from that are extreme. I mean, the, the outcomes for this organization are not just good for the employees, but it saves the Dutch, you know, healthcare system, hundreds of millions of euros a year on almost every metric that can be measured, you know, studies from Ernst and Young to others have proven that it's as good or better as the kind of top-down bureaucratic, you know, pushing paper healthcare system. And of course, everybody feels so much better about it. So the patients heal faster, they stay healthy longer, you know, all these benefits accrue. And it's basically just because they said, you know, we don't need to drive this thing from the center. The center's job is to support the edge. And so they have now 14,000 nurses in teams of 10 to 12. So you can imagine how many teams that is. And the 50 people back at HQ are basically making sure that the wheels don't fall off the bus on the bank account, <laughs> that people get paid. And that, um, and then there's a group of about 15 coaches that actually exist where if a team is having trouble, maybe they're losing money, maybe they're having trouble recruiting, maybe they're not getting the outcomes they want, they can raise a hand and say, we need help. A coach will come in and, and ask them some of these good questions, some of the questions that I, that I ask in the book, and just help them put the pieces back together. Not with authority, mind you, because the team still has the authority, but just as an outside voice. And so that's been the approach there, and it's worked so remarkably well that every time they open open in a new market, all the nurses for the competitors eventually quit and come to work for Burtzorg because why wouldn't you? Yeah. Doug. And so there's a real, there's a real power in that. When we talk about our own organizations, this, the listeners and myself included, how do we apply your structure to a smaller business? How does it scale down? We see how it scales up, but how is it, how does it trickle down to maybe a small organization? Well, the good news about a small organization is that you're probably not broken out into functional silos yet. And so you have the advantage of sitting with all these different people with all these different skills trying to get it done. And, and you wear many hats. I think one of the easiest things to do is don't pretend to be big. So one of the things we do very early on is where we say, I'm the CEO and you're the VP of finance. And let's, <laughs> let's see how we can divide this work. When in fact, we do wear many hats. And I, what I often encourage small teams to do is articulate the roles you hold. Don't think of yourself as one thing. Think of yourself as a mix of things. So I have a role mix. I'm, you know, maybe the finance manager. I'm the cook when we do offsites. I'm the mentor to this person. I, uh, you know, maybe play a role on the creative team. We articulate these roles and what is their purpose and what is the, the sort of accountabilities around each of these roles. We build a role mix. And then as the organization evolves, we can take on roles as we grow and change. We can give away roles to others in the organization as we, as we grow and, and bring others in. So it creates the sense of fluidity. 
and the sense that we can actually tap into our full potential as, as collaborators rather than putting ourselves in boxes when we totally don't need to. So I think that's one piece of it. And then the second piece is getting into the habit very early on of doing what we call in the book looping. So going from what is stopping us from doing the best work of our lives, what's the tension, what's holding us back, because there's always something, even in an amazing team, there's always the next thing. And then figuring out, well, what's one thing we could try? So really learning how to always have a second job happening, the thing you're doing, and then how you're doing it. And using retrospectives and moments of reflection to say, all right, we just did that, the first launch, or the, we, we just opened the next store, or we just did something that was significant. What did we learn? What changed? What, what, what went well? What didn't go well? What will we do differently next time? Not to write a playbook, not to write a set of rules, but to create a kind of a consciousness within the team and to, and to make that part of what it means to work there. And what I hear you say about consciousness is it's treating the organization that as something that is organic, adaptable, fluid, and the people that the employees and the people that contribute to this space are a getting their basic needs met, right? You know, the sort of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs mm -hmm. or that, that, that security is there and the investment in the employee, like you matter, you're of value, we're with you, allows the employee to rise to that self-actualization, the peak of the pyramid and transcend and be transformed. So it's give and take in both directions. I think that's right. And I think that you know, the needs that we have, the things that motivate us, uh, it turns out are not money and, and they're, you know, to a large extent, not, you know, status and power, although we get hooked into those, but really just autonomy, mastery and purpose, you know, like, like Dan Pink talked about and self-determination theory talked about before him, we want to be learning and growing. We want to feel a sense of agency in our own lives and we want to feel like we're doing something that's meaningful. And if you deliver all three of those things, you can be pretty astounded by the degree to which people commit and contribute and, you know, and play the game. And I think that giving up on this idea that we're trying to get to some perfection, some, you know, machine outcome and start thinking about ourselves more as gardeners, you know, where we, no one ever comes in from the garden and says, you know, I fixed the garden, right? We, we manage it, we tune it, we nurture it. So that's what we're doing here. We're nurturing something that's a living system and it's never done. And that's okay, actually. That's the beauty of it. That's what makes it fun. The, as Simon Sinek calls it, it's the infinite game. It's a cultivation process, you know. And the metaphor we use over here at Harvesting Happiness, right? It's a process, right? You plant the seeds, right. you water them, you nurture them, you talk to the little seedlings, and they grow yeah. and blossom into the best seedlings or tomatoes or nurses or, <laughs> you know, or whatever's <laughs> possible. Whatever they're going to become. Whatever they're going yeah, to become. Yeah, I think that's right. Thank you for joining us on the show. The book is Brave New Work. I have to say this is probably one of my new favorite organizational leadership books. Honestly, Aaron, oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank That's you. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for writing this. You can go to AaronDignan.com, TheReady.com. On Twitter, you can connect with Aaron at Aaron Dignan. And the Facebook page is Brave New Work. And of course, a play on Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. We are doing brave new work. Thanks, Aaron. Here comes the break. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration.
Welcome back to the show. Today we are talking about creating a more positive, productive, and healthy organization. My next guest is Claudette Rowley. My guest today, Claudette Rowley, is guiding the culture of an organization to be in alignment with mission, mindset, human empowerment, energy, and sustainable profit. Claudette Rowley is the CEO of Cultural Brilliance, a cultural design and change management consultancy, and the author of Cultural Brilliance, the DNA of Organizational Excellence. She has consulted at Fortune 1000 companies, small businesses, academic institutions, and startups, helping them create proactive and innovative workplace cultures that deliver outstanding results. Rowley holds a master's degree from the University of Michigan and lives in the greater Boston area with her family. And today she is in the house. Claudette, thanks for joining me on the show. Oh, thanks, Lisa. I'm really happy to be here. Me too. Let's talk about brilliant cultures and why they are so important. So brilliant. Yeah, brilliant cultures. Let's start with the definition of brilliance. When I think about brilliance in a culture and in an organization, I'm talking about the potential, right? The greatness or potential that's inherent in the people and in the culture. And what I found, I've been working with organizations for 20 years. And one thing I found is that almost every organization I went into was leaving so much potential on the table in the form of their culture. And there was so much more possible and available. So when we're talking about brilliant cultures, we're talking about really uh, you know, uncovering that potential in the organization that's going to help it move to even even more greatness even and to help support the people, as you mentioned at the beginning, the mission, the purpose, and the profits. And talk a little bit about examples of brilliant cultures. You know, brilliant cultures are found, you know, from, you know, everywhere from a, you know, small manufacturing company of 30 people. And I've, I've consulted in one of those, right? All the way up to Google, right? And Google is held up. It's interesting. Um, and, and I talk about them a little bit in the book. They did a study on what made their teams effective. And the study really stuck out to me because the cornerstone of their effectiveness, team effectiveness, was an idea called psychological safety, which simply means that uh, risk-taking is safe on the team, right? interpersonal risk-taking. So I could admit I made a mistake. I could admit that I'm nervous about something. I could admit different things, and we can learn together and grow from that. And so Google, from that perspective, has this element of brilliance, that it's really it's creating this level of trust that allows innovation, that allows people to interact, build relationships, get feedback, and grow as human beings, all while, be, well, as we know, being incredibly successful. Another example of a brilliant culture I'm thinking about is this, this smaller manufacturing company I references and a client of mine. And they, they have created a culture in which also there's high trust. And they've also created a, a culture where there's high ownership, right? It's a manufacturing environment. There's a production process going on, something being manufactured. And they've now, you know, they started out as this, you know, hierarchical top down, you know, just I'll wait until you tell me what to do kind of culture to this, you know what, now everybody, it doesn't matter where you work in the company, is empowered to speak up, share ideas, be held accountable, and really have ownership over what they're doing in the organization. And I, I think that's a form of brilliance because it's tapped into the great potential of what's possible in that, in that business. I love you describing the smaller company, you know, with, with 30 people, the manufacturing company, when we talk about the culture and that is authentic and there's uh, trust and there's room for failure because failure is where sort of the next great thing lies. You know, I think that right. we, we underrate failure. We do. We really underrate failure because 
we it has such a negative connotation, right? At least in American society. And we also we don't want to leave room for it, right? We're going we think efficiency and excellence has to do with perfection. And really it it doesn't. It has to do with with being leaving room and a buffer for some failure so that you can learn from it. And I think that's the key that's the distinction that I find is often lost in organizations is repetitive mistakes that you don't learn from where you don't look and say, hey, we've made this mistake five times, so we need to take a bigger, deeper look at this. You know, that that's a form of failure we don't want to have. But where we make a mistake and maybe even fail, you know, in, in a big way temporarily and say, what did we learn from this? Let's take, let's take every opportunity out of this experience and apply it so that we can solve even more problems or grow as an organization. I think that's the kind of failure we're looking for. Tell us about the biggest cultural challenges you're seeing in companies today, because there are a lot of them, right? There have always been a lot of them. And I, but, you know, because there's a spotlight on culture now and we're talking about it and people are writing books about it and, it, it, you know, having conferences about it, there, it seems in some ways like there are more cultural issues. Um, but the big ones, the big ones, you know, I see a lot about and that are written a lot about are one that we know employees want more out of their work now. Right. They're not, you know, when I started working, you know, 25, 30 years ago, right, you had a job, you had a good job, whether you liked it or not was wasn't necessarily a, re- a requirement. Liking your job wasn't necessarily yeah. a requirement. Doing it now was something completely different. <laughs> Doing it was right. Well, how I felt about it was sort of, you know, irrelevant in some ways, except to me. And so now we see people, you know, I want work that's on purpose. I want work that uses my strengths and passions and talents. And we see especially younger employees, much less willing to tolerate cultures that are dysfunctional, which is asking organizations to raise their games. Other cultural issues I see also have to do with behavior, like, you know, no longer tolerating bullying cultures, right? We see all the media around that, you know, organizations that tolerate bullying, the Me Too movement. So ways in which behavior was swept under the rug and deemed like okay and somewhat acceptable is now being deemed completely unacceptable. And that's raising a lot of of cultural issues. And the third one I'll mention, because it's in the news a lot, is artificial intelligence, right? We started, started seeing a lot of articles and press about what's going to happen in companies when, you know, when there's more artificial intelligence. Yeah. And what about sort of the holistic well-being of the individual, that there's m- more sensitivity today to offering flexibility in schedules in the ways mm-hmm. that we work? You know, the nine to five brick and mortar days are rapidly disappearing because of technology. Yeah, that definitely comes up. And, you know, part of my cultural brilliance model, the system I created for cultural transformation, talks about helping organizations adapt to change in ways that actually decrease stress, right? To your point about well-being, you know, how can we, how can we function as an organization in ways that are less stressful? Um, yeah, that give people flexibility, give them options, um, Although I, I will say that that is it's a cultural issue, and I think it is because I still run into a lot of organizations that are not particularly open to it. Yeah. You know, they don't they don't see employee well being as that important. Which I'm hoping with books like yours and uh, and and people out there doing good works to bring awareness to the importance of an integrated sense of well being and mm-hmm. helping people manage their lives in, in a positive and successful, healthy way, that that's how we change the corporate culture. Absolutely. I think it's incredibly important in this this notion that we, you know, leave part of ourselves at the door when we walk into work. Yeah. You know, as we know, isn't true. 
and that we do need to integrate these different parts of our lives for well-being. Absolutely. And the cultural brilliance system is actually set up in a series of steps that begin with authenticity and, and move through several of them. And maybe we can get into them in the next half, but end in social capital. Mm-hmm. And talk a little bit about the importance of social capital in the effectiveness of the bottom line to the corporation and to the sense of well-being for the employee. Yeah, I'm happy to. So that that's the very end, end of my cultural brilliant system. And that's where we're really looking at, yeah, what has changed, what has improved, you know, throughout this cultural transformation process. And part of that is really understanding that, you know, the level of trust, the nature of relationships and the connections and how those, you know, I look at, I think that is all really important. And I think it's important, particularly when it helps us get the results that we need in the organization, right? So those, there's always a business case for that. And that's where I see that social capital being really important that you're, you know, organizations we know exist for a reason to achieve certain results. And so are we are we achieving those results in a way that really support our people and allow us to continue to grow and evolve? You mentioned in your book, Cultural Brilliance, the DNA of Organizational Excellence, adaptogen design as being one of the steps in the system. And many of us might have never heard that term. Tell us what that is. Sure. Happy to. So adaptogens, and I just got familiar with them a few years ago myself, that word. You know, adaptogens are herbal substances like ginseng or maca is a couple examples that exist in the natural world. And when some pe- when people take them, they help rebalance their systems, right, their physical systems and bring them back to health. So I apply this adaptogen idea to cultural design with the, the general idea being that if, you know, what if we could design cultures, design cultural changes that actually help the organizations rebalance and regain their health when an unexpected change happened, when a new competitor became a threat, you know, things like that. There are things we know we can't plan for in business. So when something comes at an organization, how do they, how do they adapt to that in a way, ways that, that help them maintain their health and well-being? So give us an example, like take us through a scenario of, of adaptogen design. It doesn't have to be anything, you know, super complex. I'm thinking about a, a company that I worked with and they were having the presenting symptoms, so to speak, you know, in the organization was a lot of operational problems. And when we, after we did our, our assessment work that I do in the authenticity phase, we uncovered that, of course, that was true. There were operational issues, but the root cause of the operational issue had to do with, with communication and relationships. Yeah. And this was not, you know, apparently obvious and really in any way. But, you know, sort of long story short is we we worked, we really worked on that. And we did things like, you know, building trust, as we've, I've already mentioned, cleaning up the, you know, culture of gossip and blame, helping people learn how to have the courage to have more challenging conversations with each other so they could resolve op- operational problems. So they were actually having operational problems because they couldn't speak, talk with each other you know, there wasn't safe enough to sit down and have those conversations, which sometimes can be challenging. So in doing that, we created a culture that became much more adaptogenic because they could actually start solving their own problems. They could rebound. They could anticipate there was going to be an issue and proactively take a look at it and plan for it. So it didn't become so stressful that it didn't start to topple over, you know, topple the organization over when something unexpected happened. And before that, they were. They were starting to get toppled. 
And we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation about cultural brilliance with Claudette Rowley. She is the author of the book, Cultural Brilliance, the DNA of Organizational Excellence. To learn more about Claudette's work, please visit www.culturalbrilliance.com. On Twitter at Rowley Claudette and on Facebook, that page is Cultural Brilliance. Here comes the break and we'll be right back. That is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show. We are talking about creating a more positive, productive, and healthy organization with my guest, Claudette Rowley. Let's return to the conversation. Claudette, prior to the break, you were talking a little bit about adaptive genetic design. And what struck me is that as you were describing the steps to cultural brilliance that include adaptive genetic design, we're not talking about money here. You know, this is not about mm-hmm. writing a check. This is about changing a mindset and a practice. Yeah, thank you for that. It's a really good point. And it's one of the core foundations of cultural brilliance for me, brilliant cultures, is that we're looking at culture from the perspective of mindsets and behaviors and structures inside the larger organizational system. So we are, as you said, looking at how, you know, how can people change their mindset, right? Because we know mindset or belief, you know, either one, drive behavior. And the behaviors we have drive results. And so, you know, a simple example would be if my mindset is, you know, all change is bad, which sometimes I run into in organizations, you know, all change is bad. You can imagine what my behavior looks like when, you know, I have to engage in a change or I'm asked to engage in a change, right? I'm going to resist it. I may not be that cooperative. I'm going to talk about all the reasons it's not a good idea. So when, you know, as much as we can tap into and understand the mindsets that form the operating system of the beliefs in the organizations, we can actually really give people tools to change, which is an empowering process for them. Indeed. But I want to go back to what you just said about not wanting to change. It's impossible Mm -hmm. not to. I know. And isn't it interesting? People have beliefs that they can stop it. They can stop change. We cannot stop change. You know, the impermanence of all things is the only guarantee that we get. Right. Yeah, that's our one guarantee. And yet I do, you know, when I'm working in a change process in an organization, you know, usually have a spectrum of people who early adopters, this change is great, right? You have the other end. This is a terrible idea. And then all the people along the middle. Yeah. So it's interesting, this resistance to change, even though we are, you know, like you said, change is constantly occurring. And 
When you go into a company and you work with team members to shepherd a sea change, what kind of resistance or welcoming are you often met with? You know, it, it's interesting. It's usually the kind of the full spectrum. And what I find, you know, one of the principles in my work is that I want to I want to get as many people as possible engaged in the process. So all levels, all departments, all teams, and we. And I want people's feedback. I want their input. I want, and, you know, asking people, asking someone their opinion, how would you improve this? How would you change this? What are your ideas? Is one of the best ways to engage them in a change process, make them part of the change. Then they feel ownership. So I find that, you know, the majority of the time when I start to do that, people who initially are sitting with their arms folded, right? Not because they're cold, but because right. they don't think they don't want to do this, <laughs> start to get more interested. They start to get more interested. Oh, you're not just going to tell us what to do. Oh, you're not just going to push this change on us. Oh, you actually want to know what I think about what's happening in my department. Oh, okay. Now, now this, this might be a little bit different, right? And so that, that's a great way. And it's not only does it increase engagement, it just is practical. You do, you want a holistic 360 perspective of how any organization operates, not just what the leaders think, right? You need to understand what everybody thinks. Right. From the bottom up as well as the top down and left to right, right exactly. to left. And right. In the book, In Cultural Brilliance, The DNA of Organizational Excellence, you write about listening to what you hear and practicing the art of curiosity. So listening to what you hear, it's actually what it sounds like. <laughs> it's that simple. Listen to what you hear, meaning don't, you know, some people listen to what they want to hear. Some people listen to what they hope to hear and tune everything else out. So what I found is that when we listen, this is particularly true for leaders sometimes, when we listen to what we're hearing, everything, whether you, it makes, causes you pain and you really don't want to hear it, but what happens is that you, you transcend your own resistance around something, right? If I listen to everything I'm actually hearing, I get a lot of good information, I drop my resistance to it, and I, I'm actually able to better help the people in my organization. Um, and But this principle applies to anybody all of us, you know, in our personal lives and professional lives, when you listen to what you hear, you're going to actually be able to improve things much more easily. And the beautiful art of asking a question, like to, when, mm -hmm. we, when we ask questions of others, a few things happen to us, right? It's not just, oh, we're asking a question because we want the information. There's something else that happens internally to the, the asker and to the person to whom we're asking the question. Something happens to mm -hmm. them. There's an emotional exchange. Talk a little bit about that. There is an emotional exchange. And I love curiosity, you know, and I'm naturally curious as a person. So it's something that's been true throughout my life. But what I also find is that if you, if I'm curious about what you're saying, anybody's saying, I cannot judge you and be curious at the same time. You can, we, our brains cannot do that simultaneously. You know, I can judge before I'm curious and after I'm curious, yeah. but I can't judge and be curious. So if you stay in the state of curiosity and asking questions and seeking to understand where someone else is coming from, it's, you know, it's a good way to go through the world, but it's also incredibly efficient and effective, right? Because it's very time consuming to be judging something. So to the person asking the questions, when they're in that state of curiosity, there, there's the suspension of judgment or expectation, right? Because they're just right. curious. So I think that's what happens to the asker. And the person to whom it's been asking feels as though they are someone's interested in what they have to say. Yeah, it's a form of connection. 
Yeah. You know, to, to ask a question like that, it's a form of connection and, and people really, you know, most people really want to be heard, right? They want to have, they want to have a voice. They want to be heard and seen. And when you're asking a question, you start that process. You know, I always give the caveat, as long as it's not an interrogation, right? As yes. long as it's coming from genuine curiosity, right? We can, why, so why do you think that was a good idea? That That's not the kind of question I'm talking about, right? Um, tell, tell me more about your thought process, right? That That's a more curious kind of question. That's what I, that was my very next question is the languaging, yeah. the, the presentation of questions. Mm-hmm. So they feel like they are genuine and, and inquisitive and there's curiosity is activated versus, you know, you know, the checklist, you know, why did you do that? It's like, tell, tell me more yeah. about what, 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 what motivated that decision. I'm curious. Yeah, it's, it's really important because that kind of exchange builds trust also. Um, yes. When people believe you're really asking because you're curious and people believe that you're, you're, you're in it with them if there's a mistake that's been made or a problem that needs to be solved versus you're interrogating, right? Asking, you know, a kind of rapid fire check, like you said, checklist type questions, you know, and then people tend to feel like you're trying to find fault with them, right? You're asking me questions because you want to find out where I messed up. That that actually really takes trust, you know, takes down trust. It frays trust. Or it's like the QC list. You know, is this person and are they living up to the expectations? Have they completed the line items that lets right. me know that they're worthy? Right. It doesn't have to right. necessarily be negative. But what I'm also no. hearing yeah. you say is that at the end of the day, the building of connections, like true connections, whether they're in our professional lives or in our personal lives speaks to what really rules the human condition, right? Which is this desire mm-hmm. to be, like you said, to be seen, heard, understood, valued, appreciated, and invited to be part of the tribe. I think that's all 100% true. Um, and when you create a culture like the one you just described, you're, you know, your organization can do almost anything. Yeah. You have people that are engaged, committed, loyal, want to contribute, uh, will bring forth their best ideas, means they're going to be innovative, which means they're going to go the extra mile. They're going to solve problems better and differently. You know, there's a lot. They're going to take ownership. So you're unbeatable at that point. It's pretty exciting. It's super exciting to learn more about the work of Claudette Rowley and Cultural Brilliance. Please visit her website, culturalbrilliance.com, on Twitter at Rowley Claudette, and on Facebook, that page is Cultural Brilliance. The book we've been speaking of today is Cultural Brilliance, the DNA of Organizational Excellence, and my guest has been Claudette Rowley, who is the CEO of the corporation Cultural Brilliance. Thanks, Claudette. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Erin Dignan and Claudette Rowley, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUUradiomalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.